So, if you have a Bible near you, would you grab that and turn it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, or you normally access your Bible on your phone, and you're going to be tempted to look at World Cup score, you can just use one of the paperback ones we provide and just take the temptation out of the way. And so please grab a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. It's yours. Um, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We're going to Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. If you're using one of these black Bibles, that's page 691. And if you have one of the newer gold Bibles, that's 473. So please follow along as I read, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we want to receive this this morning as you speaking to us. We want to receive this as it is, as your word. And so I pray that even now, that you would, you would humble our hearts, that you would quiet our distractions, that you would enable us to give you, to give your son Jesus our full attention. And we pray that this passage of scripture would have its, would have its work accomplished in us, that we would become the kind of people you intended we'd become when you inspired this and put this in your word. And so we receive this with thanksgiving. Help us to receive it with humility. Help us to be doers of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are on Facebook, not now, but in general, if you are on Facebook, you have probably seen ads for Masterclass, which is a training platform with online videos by world-renowned experts in their field. So you can learn acting from Dame Helen Mirren, cooking from Gordon Ramsay, basketball from Steph Curry. I've been tempted to price out the writing class by Malcolm Gladwell or the class by my favorite screenwriter, Aaron Sorkin, who wrote The West Wing. Now, I have no interest in writing books or being a screenwriter or an actor or a basketball player, but those classes draw me in because I want to know what someone who is the best thinks about what they're doing. And our passage this morning is Jesus' masterclass on prayer. It is almost certainly the most widely recognized and revered teaching on prayer in the history of the world. Jesus' masterclass is only seven lines long, seven lines so well known that many of you could probably rattle them off without even really thinking about it. And ironically, that is exactly the opposite of the Lord's intent. I think most of the times the Lord's prayer is said, it's said without even thinking about it. But what he says, take a look at verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard 
for their many words. So he, he talks first about how we're not to pray. How are we not to pray? He said we're not to pray in a way that treats prayer mechanically, like a technique. Jesus says the mark of pagan prayer is that they think the power is in the prayer itself. If we just say the right words in the right way, the right number of times, hey presto, we get what we want. Have you guys, have you seen the first Harry Potter movie? So in the, in the first Harry Potter movie, there's this scene where Ron and Hermione are in their first charms class, their spells class, and they're supposed to make a feather float. And so they have their wands, and they have to, they have to use their wands in the exact right way, right? Swish and flick. And they have to say the incantation in just the right way, Wingardium Leviosa, right? And only if they do that in the exact right way will the feather float as intended. The effectiveness of the spell is all in how it's performed. And we can treat prayer that way. I have to do it like this. I have to say it like this. I have to be kneeling. I have to speak earnestly. I have to really believe. And Jesus says that's not what prayer is. It's not a way of getting something from God. It's not mechanical. It's relational. It's drawing near to your Father. Not simply to get something from him, but to get closer to him. In fact, look at verse 8. Jesus says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer is not about informing God of what you need so that he'll give it to you. He already knows. And someone might ask, well, if, if God knows what we need before we ask, why ask at all? Isn't he just going to give us what he's going to give us? And there are lots of good reasons. For one, Jesus tells us to, and it's his master class. For another, we see in Scripture that God really does answer prayer. He sends rain in response to prayer. He heals in response to prayer. He changes the hearts of kings in response to prayer. We pray because God acts. But there's one more reason especially relevant to this passage. I don't know if you've seen the film Shadowlands, which is the story of C.S. Lewis's marriage to Joy Gresham, who's an American poet. Uh, and she has, they find, terminal cancer. And so there's a scene in it when some of Lewis's colleagues are they're kind of gathering around him, seeing how he's doing with his wife's illness. And one of them says to him, I, I know how hard you've been praying, and now God is answering your prayers. And Lewis says, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. Now, God does answer prayer, and it's not wrong to ask him for things. That's in the Lord's Prayer, but prayer isn't just for that. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. So Jesus didn't give us this prayer so we could repeat it thoughtlessly like a mantra or treat it like a magic spell. It's a map for relating to God in a way that shapes us into the people he's called us to be. If we give ourselves to this prayer, if we let it reshape our mind and heart, it won't change God, but it will change us. So what are the elements Jesus says should shape our drawing near to him? We're going to look at four. Assurance, adoration, submission, and dependence. First, assurance of God's love. Jesus says that we can't pray rightly to this God until we know him as our Father. He says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. 
Christians approach God in prayer with the assurance that he receives them as a father receives his child. Now, there are times in the Old Testament of the Bible where God is compared to a father. So in in Psalm 103, verse 13, just a beautiful psalm, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So it compares God to a father, but so far as I'm aware, there is no place in the Old Testament where anyone addresses God as father. No one until Jesus. They call him Sovereign Lord, Almighty God, and that's right, that's what he is, but Jesus calls him Father. And you might say, well, that makes sense, right? Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He, God is his Father. He was, he was born the Son of God. And that's true. But Jesus isn't the only one who calls God Father. He teaches us to call him Father, too. He says he's your Father in heaven. He says, call him our Father. So Jesus invites us to share his relationship to God. The gospel writer John tells us, but to all who did receive him, to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus was born into God's family, but he invites us through trusting in him to be adopted into God's family, to call God Father. So do you know that God is your Father? Have you trusted in Jesus to bring you into this family? And how does it change prayer to know that God is your Father? You guys know the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Esther was, she was part of God's people. She was a Jew in exile in Persia, and she became the queen of Persia. And she learned that there was a plot against the Jewish people, that uh, the king's advisor, Haman, had devised this plot to, to exterminate the Jewish people. And she knew that she had to go to the king and, and beg him to intervene. And even though she was the queen, I mean, she was his wife. She was afraid to go to the king because the law was if you appear before the king and he doesn't extend to you his scepter, if you, if you haven't been called, if you just come on your own and he doesn't extend his scepter, you can be killed. And so she has to, she has to have the courage to go and say, if I perish, I perish, but, but I have to go before the king. And And if that is the way you see God as a king who is distant and dangerous, a king who you're not sure welcomes you unless he's called you specifically, you're only going to come when you're desperate. You're only going to come to him when you really need something. But how do you approach a father, a good father? You come to him all the time for anything. You come to him in the middle of the night when you're scared. You come to him when you're hurt and you need compassion. You come to him just to invite him into your world. You come all the time for anything because you know that you're welcome. He doesn't accept you because of your performance. He doesn't accept you because of the way that you ask. He accepts you because you're his child and he loves you. If you're a parent, you never want your children to hesitate to come to you. And that's how God says, that's how Jesus says that God wants us to be, to never hesitate. He's our father. J.I. Packer wrote in his classic book, Knowing God, He wrote, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, 
It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you have trusted in Jesus, God loves you. He loves you. He welcomes you. Do you know it? Jesus says you can't get anywhere in prayer until you have this assurance. And having started there, he moves on to, secondly, adoration. Adoration of God's greatness. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer, the first thing that Jesus tells us to ask for is, at the end of verse 9, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means set apart, treated as holy, as special, as incomparable. So to pray this is to pray, God, make it so that everyone treats you with the reverence and the honor and adoration you deserve simply because of who you are. It's saying, God, you are worthy of worship, so be worshiped. You are worthy of honor, so be honored. And you can't pray that sincerely without adoring him yourself. This God, our Father, he's our Father in heaven. He's not part of this creation. He made all things and exists outside time and outside space. He's supreme. He has all power. He knows all things. He's present in all places. There are no limits to his greatness and no end of his goodness. And Jesus says you can't rightly draw near to him without adoring him. You can't just rush to list off the things you want. This is about assuming our proper posture before him. Stop, stop with your list, stop right where you are, and remember who he is and who you are before him. We were made to worship this God. Even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you were made by him for him. And, and you can see it in this. Humans have this amazing capacity to be amazed. We, we love to lose ourselves in beauty, to stare at a sunset over the ocean, to stand at the foot of a snow-capped mountain or at the rim of a canyon and just forget ourselves and be swept away in beauty. We were made for awe. We were made for worship. We were made to left, be left speechless by the beauty of God. And, and God doesn't call us to adoration. He doesn't call us to adoration because he needs it. God does not suffer from low self-esteem. He calls us to adoration because we need it. And this is why. The default mode of the human heart is self-focus. Right? Without even realizing it, our whole world begins to revolve around how I feel, what I want, what I deserve, what I need. And if we bring that attitude into prayer, we'll just be treating God as a means to an end, right? Prayer will just become the coins you put in the vending machine to get your Coke. And God says, you can't relate to me like that. Before you go any further, remember who I am and you'll remember who you are. You were made for me. You're my child. And when we do that, we'll be able to pray, hallowed be your name. Be praised and exalted and seen as you are. And that will lead naturally into, third, submission. Submission to God's purposes. Look at verse 10. Jesus tells us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So I said before that the default mode of the human heart is self-focus. And the default cry of the human heart is, Hallowed be my name. My kingdom come. My will be done. Isn't it? It's why we stew over ways we've been insulted or slighted or overlooked because we think we deserve to be treated as special. We overreact to our children's disobedience because we want them to treat us like kings and queens, right? We think we should call their name and they should come running, kneel, and say, your majesty, right? What is thy bidding, my master? 
This is why we get so frustrated when our day doesn't go as planned or when at work our proposal is turned down or our advice is not heeded. We think the world would work better if we were in charge of it, if it all revolved around us. We want to be God. This is the essence of sin and has marked us ever since the garden. So life in the garden was perfect, right? God's name was hallowed. His kingdom was present. His will was done. But the serpent suggested to Eve that God wasn't actually a good father, that by withholding from them the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he was keeping them from real happiness. The serpent said that if they ate the fruit, they would be like God. They could choose for themselves. They wouldn't have to just do whatever he said. They should throw off the shackles of serving him and serve themselves, and they did. That's what we've been doing ever since. We want to sit on the throne, and that's why Jesus says that part of Part of drawing near to God is getting off the throne. We submit our purposes to him. We say, thy kingdom come. So what does it mean to pray, thy kingdom come? It means we look at the world as it is, as it has been ever since the garden. Families being pulled apart by divorce and incarceration. People groups being exterminated through genocide. Unchecked greed. Oppression of the poor fatal illnesses, natural disasters. We look at the world as it is, as it has been ever since we rejected God as king, and we say, if God's rule were realized here and now, this is not how it would be. This is not how the world would be if God were recognized as king. If the peoples of the earth would submit to God as the king of kings, it'd be the end of wars, because God's people love their enemies. If, if the people of the world would turn to him, it'd be the end of injustice because God's people love their neighbors as themselves. If God's rule were seen in the natural world, it would be the end of famine, the end of earthquakes, the end of disease, the end of death. That's what the world will be like when Jesus returns as king. And so we pray, God, your kingdom come. Make it so. Cause more and more people to turn from living for themselves and trust in Jesus the king. Let your kingdom be seen in the reconciliation of enemies and the restoration of justice and the healing of diseases. Do it now, in this time, and let the time come quickly when Jesus returns to do it all perfectly forever. Your kingdom come, and your will be done. It's to pray, Father, work in this world such that it's not the will of people that prevails, it's not the will of our enemy Satan that prevails, but your will that prevails in my life, in my community, in the world. Your will that is marked by love and justice and wisdom. Do you see how this prayer that Jesus taught will reshape your life? Think how differently we'd live if we carried with us the continual assurance that God is our Father. Think how differently we'd experience our day if our heart's posture was one of amazement and adoration instead of self-focus and self-love. Think how differently we'd relate to the world around us if we were fully submitted to the rule and the reign of God. This prayer will change us. And once we've been through this reshaping and we're reorienting, then we're ready to ask God for things. And that's the last part of our drawing near to God. It's dependence on God's provision. So look at verse 11. Jesus tells us to pray, "'Give us this day our daily bread.'" And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So what Jesus tells us to ask for is comprehensive provision of all of our needs, material and spiritual. He tells us to ask for our daily bread. What's our daily bread? 
when God's people came out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, they, you know, they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, they worried that they wouldn't have enough to eat because it was a wilderness, right? It wasn't exactly, you know, hometown buffet. There wasn't just food everywhere. They, they worried that they wouldn't have enough to eat, and so God said that he would give them food. He sent them every morning manna, which was bread from heaven. So every morning they'd get up, they'd collect what they needed for that day, and they'd always have enough to eat. But they couldn't save it. So if they, if they tried to collect more than they needed for the day and kept it overnight, it would rot. It would go bad. And that was God's way of teaching them, I will take care of you every day. My job is to take care of the bread. Your job is to trust me. Depend on me. Don't worry Don't hoard. I will take care of each day as it comes. That's daily bread. It's what I need today. It's my food, my clothes, the roof over my head. It's my bills and my health and my safety. It's not everything I want. It's everything I need. Everything I need to live. Jesus tells us that God wants to take care of us, and so we should confidently Bring our needs before him. Ask him for whatever it is that we need. So what are you lacking right now? How how are you worried? What are you worried that you'll need and not have? Have you brought that before your father and said, you've told me to ask for daily bread and this is what I need. I'm trusting you. I depend on you. But Jesus tells us not just to come before God for our physical needs, but also our spiritual needs. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. So God's people have a continual need for God's forgiveness. Now, I want to be really clear at this point. This does not contradict what is gloriously true, that when we trust in Jesus, when we become God's children, we are righteous in his sight forever. God will never condemn us for our sins or abandon us because of them. Nothing we do can change his posture of love towards us, but our sins can affect our relationship to God. Paul says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says that our hearts can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The more we choose to sin, the easier it becomes. The apostle John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we get when we come to God for forgiveness. So we come to God once for salvation, but we come to him as often as we sin for cleansing, for forgiveness. Now, but this last part of verse 12, I wonder how often we've said this prayer and never really thought about how serious this is. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's a connection Jesus makes between our forgiving of others and God's forgiving of us that makes even, he makes even more explicit in verses 14 to 15. Look at that. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is saying, if you pray for God to forgive you while at the t- same time refusing to forgive someone else, do not think you'll be forgiven oh my, how can that be? That can't mean that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving, right? Salvation is by grace. It's not by works. But what can it mean? Jesus tells this parable later in Matthew's gospel. He says there was a king who wanted to settle the debts his servants owed him. 
And so he called the servants before him. He called one servant before him that owed him a debt that he could never pay, okay? In the equivalent, the conversion equivalent would be like multiple billions of dollars in today's money, billions with a B. And that man, he couldn't pay, and he pleaded for mercy from the king, and the king forgave his debt, forgave it entirely. He didn't just give him more time. He wiped the slate clean. And no sooner had that servant left the king than he found another servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And that servant pleaded, pleaded to him for mercy. Give me more time. I can't pay you. And that first servant refused and had the other servant thrown in prison. And when the king heard it, he summoned that first servant, the one he had forgiven before him, and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? What's the point? Every human owes God a debt that we can't pay. Every sin, every unkind word, every evil thought, every moment when we weren't full of love for God has increased our debt to him. We can never pay. But when we trust in Jesus, the whole debt is wiped clean. And having been forgiven that much, it's inconceivable that we couldn't then forgive the little things people do against us, which can't even compare to what we had done against God. If we can't forgive, if, I mean, it, not, not that it's hard, but if you really can't forgive, if we can't forgive, we haven't been humbled yet by how great our sin against God is and how much it costs Jesus to forgive us. People who can't forgive can't be forgiven because they're still too proud to, from the heart, confess their sins, confess their weakness, confess that they can't change themselves and forsake all those things and trust in Jesus. If we can humble ourselves to admit to God that we don't have the righteousness we need, that our, our righteousness can never save us, we only depend on your mercy. If you can humble yourselves enough to do that, then you can humble yourself to forgive someone who sins against you. So God takes our living in right relationship with others seriously, and that seriousness should make us desperate to pray the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are so weak, and there are so many ways for us to go wrong. There's still so much darkness in our hearts, so much allure in the world, so many schemes of our enemy. So we we know that we're not strong enough on our own, and we pray, lead us not into temptation. Lead us into obedience. Lead us into godliness. Lead us into safety. Deliver us from evil, from its allure and its power. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to relate to God in absolute dependence. Dependence on his material provision, on spiritual cleansing, on the strength to live a life pleasing to him. Jesus beckons us into a relationship with God marked by assurance of his love adoration of his greatness, submission to his purposes, dependence on his provision. So where in that do you struggle? Do you hesitate to call God your father? Does it seem outrageous because of all the things that you've done? Do you, in your heart of hearts, wonder what he's ever done for you that you should adore him? Do you find yourself unsure of whether you can trust him to let go, enough to let go of your own plans and submit to his, or whether you can depend on him to meet all your needs. No matter where your struggle is in prayer, there's one more thing we need to see that will give you power to change. Now, I said before that Jesus characteristically called God Father. It's how, Father is how Jesus called God every time in the New Testament we have a record of him speaking to God, except one. 
Do you know the one time, the one time that Jesus didn't say, my father? He didn't say, my father. He cried instead, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment on the cross, Jesus didn't call God Father because in that moment, he wasn't being treated as a son. He was being treated as a sinner, as sin itself. He was taking the punishment, the death penalty, all sin deserves. It wasn't until he'd made the full payment of our debt that he could say again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. The way Jesus secured this relationship for you is by, on the cross, giving it up himself. This is the ultimate assurance of God's love. He gave his son for you. It fuels ultimate adoration. Who could adequately appraise, who could adequately praise a God so good? It enables our submission. We can trust the purposes of a God who gave his son for us. And we can depend entirely on this God. If he gave his son for us, what would he withhold? The Lord's Prayer is not something we recite mindlessly. It's a map for drawing near to God. We begin by addressing him as our Father in heaven, remembering how he has adopted us through the death of his Son, how he receives us in love, not judgment. We adore his name and his nature and ask that he would help us praise him more and help more people praise him. We submit our kingdom and our will to his and ask that he would fulfill all his purposes. And then we ask for all our needs, everything that worries us, everything that weighs on us for our daily bread and the forgiveness of our sins and the strength to live his way. And as we do, God will shape us into the people he made us to be. So can we close? Can we close by praying this together? Look in your Bible or look behind me. Let's pray it now as people who understand. Let's engage our hearts. Our Father, let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father, this is the cry of our hearts, or should be. This is the way you have invited us to pray. And so we rejoice in knowing that there's nothing you've told us to pray for that you do not intend to give. You intend for your name to be hallowed, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. You intend to meet our physical needs. You intend our forgiveness. You intend our obedience. All these things you love to give, and that's why you've told us to ask. And so, Father, I pray that you would shape us into people who see our own weakness, see our need for you, and come to you continually as children to a father, asking you for all these things. And I pray that as we do, that you will shape us into people that are useful to you, people in whom your glory is seen and praised, people who look like Jesus in the world. And so help us, as individuals, help us as a family in Christ. Shape us by this word. In Jesus' name, amen.